All right, well, beautiful scene. Um, glad that you're here this morning. So I've not met you, my name's Aaron, and I'm the preaching pastor here at Red Village, and um, I'd be glad that you're with us on this uh, a little bit warmer uh, winter morning. So if you have a Bible with you, if you want to open up to the book of 1 Samuel. This morning, our text of study comes from 1 Samuel 14, verses 24 through 52. But for our time here, I'm just going to read verses 24 through 30. And then I'm going to pray and ask for the Lord's uh, blessing on this time, and then we will work through the passage. So 1 Samuel 14, verses 24 through 30 is what I will read uh, for us right here. So this is what the Word said. Verse says, And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening, and I am avenged of my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. When all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dripping. But not one put his hand to the mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge to the people with the oath. So he put the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb and put, it, put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. One of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Okay, that's God's word for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, your holy word. And uh, Lord, we're here this morning because we want to hear you speak through your holy word. And so God, please help me to be a good communicator. Please help the church to be good listeners. And we pray that your spirit would do a great work for your great glory in this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're about halfway through our study of 1 Samuel, which is a study that we actually started last summer. And before we started the series, uh, sermon series, I had a few thoughts on how the series might go, some takeaways we might have. Uh, with the biggest one, hopefully, that we would see just the faithfulness of God to his people, even though his people were not faithful to him. That's actually something we covered many times in our sermon series already in 1 Samuel, including our passage from last Sunday, how God will be faithful to his word, he will be faithful to his promises, he will be faithful to his people. And that's actually a hope that I continue to have for us in this sermon series, that the faithfulness of God would continue to encourage you, encourage us that God is faithful, that he is our sure and steady rock. However, now that we're about halfway through, one of the things I did not necessarily consider at the start of this sermon series would just be how convicting uh, this study would be. Uh, convicting in terms of how many of the struggles and the sins that are present throughout 1 Samuel are a mirror to my own struggles, my own sins. So, so to speak personally, in our study, I felt conviction on making and keeping promises I felt conviction on engaging my kids in their lives as a parent. Uh, I've felt conviction over like sinful assumptions that are just easy for me to make upon the Lord. Uh, I felt conviction on temptation to try to like twist scriptures to suit my own desires. Uh, in this study, including our text today, I felt conviction of wanting to like manipulate and control things around me rather than trusting in the Lord. When I started to prepare this sermon series, I just didn't realize how practically convicting this book would be. 
which by the way is a reminder, there's really nothing new under the sun. The challenges that are present in 1000 BC, which is kind of the general timeline of 1 Samuel, there's just the same challenges that we face today. I say to you this morning because our text of study is yet another convicting text, a text that really hit home for me personally, and I assume might personally hit home for you today as well. So our text, the study today, centers on King Saul basically running his mouth all throughout the text, crescendoing into a foolish and rash vow where he put his son into a really awful position. So at least for me, this is a convicting text when I think about my tongue and the words that come out of them. Now, before we get to the text, quick reminder where we left off last week. So our text today is part of a larger section that we started in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, where the people of God were in an awful place uh, because their powerful rivals, the Philistines, started to go on attack against them. And as the Philistines went on attack, uh, they were able to put together a massive army who were able to secure the high ground. And as the Philistines had all the military momentum on their side, Israel, God's people, had more and more things going against them, which caused morale throughout Israel to continue to decrease. So you may remember King Saul decided he needed to do something. He needed to change momentum. He needed to take control of the situation. So he came up with a plan to offer up a sacrifice to the Lord, which perhaps kind of sounds right, perhaps sounds kind of good. But then this is a foolish act. His scripture has clear instructions on who could offer up sacrifices. It wasn't the king, it was the priest, which would have been Samuel. And because of this unlawful sacrifice by Saul, the Lord judged Saul to the point that Samuel, the priest, told Saul that in time that he would lose the kingdom, the very thing that he was trying to sinfully hold on to. So that was chapter 13, which is really a hopeless situation for God's people. Nothing seemingly going right for them. But then our text last week, we read how God did a great and unexpected work among them, how he fought for his people, where yet again, God proved himself to be faithful. In our text last week, the Lord proved himself faithful by his work through the son of Saul, Jonathan, as well as Jonathan's young armor bearer. So you may remember remember from our text last week, the Lord worked through Jonathan and the armor bearer in ways that he put confusion into the camp of the Philistines. There was such great confusion that the Philistines started to like fight among themselves. And as they started to fight among themselves, they actually go on the run. And as they were on the run, the Lord continued to work among his people. We even raised up like some wishy-washy and timid people to drive the Philistines further and further out of the land. So that's where we left off last week. The Philistines are on the run, being pushed past beyond Beth-Avon. And they're on their route back to uh, their homeland. Now today, as we pick up the text... As mentioned, Saul foolishly, sinfully runs his mouth all throughout uh, this scene, which I think further underlines Saul's desire for control, which we'll get back to more in just a bit. So look back at me, starting in the text, starting in verse 24. If you have a Bible open, just keep them open. We're just going to walk through the passage. So in this text, we see that the men of Israel were pushing the Philistines beyond Beth-Avon, and we see that it was like a hard and weary push for them. This is a, a draining chase. So our text tells us that they were like hard-pressed that day. Which, by the way, maybe on a side note, it's a reminder that as the Lord uses his people to accomplish his will, at times, in fact, seemingly often, it's through like difficulty for his people. It's through like trials and tribulations. It's God using his people who are, who are hard-pressed. In our text, as Israel was hard-pressed, we see that Saul was looking on and he was seeing that things were not going the way 
he wanted them to go. And so he decided he needed to take control of the situation, which he did by laying an oath on his people, which was an oath that was more of, like of a heavy burden on them, a burden that were only added to their difficulties. Now, remember a few weeks back when we got to the text where uh, Samuel gave his farewell address, where he was like mindful enough to know when to give like a hard word, also mindful enough to know when to give a gracious word, which is a good reminder, a good model for us to follow as we seek to care for those around us. Like we need to be mindful. Well, here in the person of Saul, we see the opposite example. We see an example, one that we must avoid. Because his example in this text here, this is not mindfulness, but this is harshness. This is him completely not understanding the situation at hand. Verse uh, 25, we see the foolish, harsh words of Saul, which was a declaration that if anyone eats of the food until, uh, until everyone's pushed away, that that man would be cursed. And he said that this ball would be in place until I am avenged of my enemies. So the text tells us that the people had tasted no food. So in short, this hard-pressed, tired army, now they're told that now they have to fast. And they said that anyone goes against this fast, like they would be cursed. Now, take a step back. Imagine how deflating and discouraging this had to be for the hard-pressed army. So yes, no doubt, in the right time, the right motives, like fasting, this is a good and right biblical practice. But this time, this scene, this is not a command given with the right motives. Right? This is an added burden on the people. Keep saying, this is Saul. He's trying to further take control, to further manipulate, to further abuse his power. I think in the text, you get the sense that Saul's just not happy the way things are going. So he takes his frustration on his people by giving them this oath, this burden. By the way, let me point out why we can discern that the words of Saul were not coming from like a right heart, right motives. Notice where the, the focus of his words were pointed. Those at the end of the curse, it says, until I am avenged of my enemies. Just notice how different this language is from what we saw last week with Jonathan. So in the text last week, Jonathan's words, that maybe the Lord might work among us. For nothing can hinder the Lord, for the Lord have given them into our hands. This is a very different focus from Saul in this text. Until I am avenged of my enemies. Right, this oath here, this is not ministering grace to his hearers. This is harsh, soul-crushing words. Verse 25, as the fast is declared, as mentioned, all who heard it, none dared to go against them. Right, they all were afraid of Saul, which is probably an indication of how fast Saul was starting from his good start of his reign. At this point already, people felt like they could talk to him. They couldn't challenge him. They couldn't oppose his words. So in the text, even when all the tired, hard-pressed soldiers came to the forest, and as they spotted the tasty, nutritious honey on the ground, verse 26, none put the hand or the honey to his hand and into his mouth. Rather, the honey just sat there, with the people looking at it with fear in their eyes. However, in verse 27, we see that not all heard the command of Saul to fast. As we read that his son Jonathan was not there when the oath was made. So when Jonathan saw the honey, naturally, the text tells us, he took the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it right into the honey and put it right into his mouth. I read that after a long, hard-pressed day, the honey not only was sweet to Jonathan's tongue, 
but it's just what his wore down, hard-pressed body needed. Right? This honey provided some needed nutrients to him. To the point that our text tells us that the honey like brightened his eyes. And as Jonathan's eyes were brightened, the eyes of the rest of the people actually widened. In the text, they're like shocked to see Jonathan do this act. So verse 28, one of them mustered up enough courage to go over to Jonathan uh, to question Jonathan, saying to him, Jonathan, your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. Now, it's hard to know the tone of the question by this man. Was this a tone of like, how dare you, Jonathan, do this thing? Or was it maybe a tone of confusion, looking for some clarity? Perhaps this is even a tone of like concern for Jonathan, who we see in this text was well-liked, well-thought of. Like Whatever the motives of the man, it became known to Jonathan what his dad had said. And as Jonathan heard this information, as he no, look, no doubt looked around, as he saw the faint group of people, he responded back in verse 29 of the text with some pretty honest words and thoughts towards his dad. Some pretty honest words about Saul's cruel and careless words. In the text, we read that Jonathan told the faint group that his father, through these careless words, has once again brought trouble into the land. That what Saul declared, this was actually foolish, it was rash, it was flippant, it was abuse of power, it was unkind. Jonathan even argued that it was the exact opposite thing that the hard-breast people needed to hear that day. Because in truth, today was not a day to fast. Rather, this was a time to eat and be nourished. So Jonathan communicated his disagreement on how his dad was speaking, how he was leading things. To prove his point to the people, he told the group to basically like, look into my eyes and see how just even a little bit of honey, how that has helped brighten them up. Verse 30. Jonathan told the people that if in this time, if God's people were freely eating of the spoil of the enemies and the food that they left behind while they were on the run, Jonathan told them that that's what they were doing, this would have been a complete rout of the Philistines. But because of this foolish command, these foolish words that his dad gave, now the defeat among the Philistines would not be as great as it should have been. This flippant oath that Saul made it's just like hurting God's people in more than ways than just like stomach pains. This is hurting in the ways that like the work of God among them was being less. It allowed for their enemies to escape. Verse 31, if you want to take your eyes there. After this communication from Jonathan, we see that the very faint people were striking down the Philistines from Mochas to Agilon. We also read that Jonathan's words that it would be better for them to eat. We see that that started to really resonate with them. At least for me, as I thought about this scene this week, you could just like hear like the hungry soldiers giving out shouts of agreement to Jonathan and his words that actually, you know what, you guys should actually eat. So in verse 32, this, growing, uh, this group is like growing a frenzy among them, a frenzy like to, cause, uh, to cast off the commands of Saul. And so the people's like pounced on the spoiler, text tells us. And they grabbed sheep, and they grabbed oxen, and they grabbed calves, and they slaughtered them on the ground. Right? They're, they're throwing a feast. They're breaking the fast. In the text, we see as they did that, they took the words of Jonathan a little bit too far. They swung the pendulum like too far the other way, which we know how easy it is to do that. 
As we read that the soldiers ate with such ferocity and such freedom that they had no mindfulness of the Old Testament instruction to not eat meat with blood, which is an instruction we see in Leviticus 7, 17, as well as Deuteronomy 12. Our text plainly tells us at the end of verse 32, and the people ate with the blood. Like they're sinning here. And no doubt this was their sin. But I do think the author of the text wants us to see, like Saul actually has a hand in them sinning. Like his foolish words set his people up for a fall. In the text is the people are having this big feast, eating the blood and the meat. We see that word gets back to Saul and what's happening. We see this in verse 33. We see a report to Saul. Saul, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with blood. Which here didn't cause like Saul to take a step back, consider maybe how his role in this whole scene here like put them in a bad place. Like this is actually a problem that continues to happen for Saul. Like he's never mindful of his own sin. He just could never humbly admit of his own wrongdoing. Rather than the text, as he heard this report, we see that he comes like down pretty harshly on the people of Israel. We see that he like hypocritically condemns them. He tells them how they've dealt treacherously, how they've broken the faith. And as Saul scolded the people, he calls for a great stone to be brought over which was to serve as basically a drying rack to be used to help the blood drip out of the meat that was not yet eaten. Verse 34. As Saul got the rock, he told those who gave him the report of what was happening to disperse among yourselves, among the rest of the people, and to give them instructions. Instructions to bring the ox or the sheep over to the great walk and to have the animals sacrificed there so the blood would drip out and to stop sinning against the Lord by eating the blood. Let's just say it again. Like, he's right here. Like, the people were sinning. But I think the text helps us, or wants us to see, this is like a little hypocritical for Saul to call them out in this fashion. With all the ways that he has continued to sin in the last few chapters. Especially we consider the information given to us in verse 35. So you read that Saul built the altar to the Lord, but that's actually the first time he ever did so. Like, he's a hypocrite here. Like he's holding Israel's feet to the fire in their walk with the Lord, where he himself seemed to have no real walk with God. Now this here feels like Saul presented himself in ways that are just not true to what his character really was. He wasn't as committed to the faith as he kind of maybe was given the appearance here. This, this wasn't true. This is more of Saul just kind of like running his mouth. He's tearing others down to try to make himself look better. Verse 36, after Saul rebuked the people, he then said to the people, let's go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until morning. And let us plunder them in such a way that we don't even leave a single Philistine man to escape. Which, by the way, this kind of made me eye, eye roll a bit here. He just rebuked everyone. He's trying to play this spiritual card that he's better than everyone. But at the same time, he still kind of needs the army. So he's still trying to keep them close and on his side. Then in verse 36, as Saul tried to rally the troops to go on this nighttime crusade, we see that actually he was pretty successful because they agreed with him, saying that Saul should do whatever seemed good for him to do. In short, Saul, if you want us to rest, we will rest, but if you want us to fight, we will fight. Just tell us, we will do whatever you want us to do. The army agreed. They're on board. However, we see that not all were on board. In the text, we see the priests were not on board with the decision by Saul. 
at least not on board without first drawing near to God, to ensure that this is actually what the Lord wanted them to do. By the way, I think this even further emphasizes just the hypocritical nature of Saul and all of his words up to this point, up to this point in the text. Like, none of them were words of prayer towards God. Like, he, he talks a big public game about his faith, but in private, his words prove to be hollow. Verse 37, it's hard to know if Saul wholeheartedly agreed with the priest, or maybe he did so with reluctance. Either way, we see that he did what suggested. So he prayed. He inquires of God. God, shall I go down after the Philistines like I suggested we do? And if we go after them, will you then give them to our hands and give us victory? Is that what you do, God? Please give us the answer. Amen. However, Saul prayed as he waited for the answer. Read that nothing came from the Lord. There wasn't a yes. There wasn't a no. Rather, the text tells us there's silence from the Lord. Deafening silence. Silence that now begins to like anger Saul. And in his anger, Saul begins to assume that someone, not him, someone in the camp has sinned. So we see that he calls the leaders together and tasks them with finding out who has sinned in the camp. As he called the leaders together in his anger, he continues to run his mouth. As Saul vows to kill whoever it is who has sinned, even if it was his own son, Jonathan. Right, do you see here how his words, his brash, bold words, like they're just like continuing to snowball? Right, things don't slow down for Saul's tongue once they get going. They keep going. They keep coming bigger and bigger words, more and more sinful foolishness, where he keeps talking a bigger and bigger game. In our text, as Saul made this rash vow, we see that no one answered him. And they don't answer him because they knew what had happened with Jonathan and the honey. But they didn't dare mention this to Saul. So the text tells us they just kept quiet. Verse 40. So Saul to all of Israel, hey, listen, I got an idea here. We're going to get to the bottom of this. We're going to figure out who actually is the one who sinned. So what we're going to do is we're going to get into two camps. You should be on one side in one camp. And my son, Jonathan, and I will be on the other side in the other camp. That's what Saul's doing here. He's basically setting things up to see who is at fault, who is at sin. Which we're going to go into a little bit more just on how that would work in just a second. But clearly, he's putting this plan in place. Saul did not think the problem was with him or his son. So as he separated himself from the rest of the camp, he's doing so, you know, just assuming that it's someone else's problem. And as he's doing this, I'm sure Israel's just kind of looking on among themselves, kind of shrugging their shoulders. As mentioned, they knew. In their text, when they respond back to Saul, okay, if that's what you want to do, do what seems good to you. So with everyone in agreement, they separate themselves into two parties. And Saul, once again, begins to inquire of the Lord, asking the God of Israel why he had not responded to him earlier in the day saying, Lord, you did not respond because there must be sin. There must be guilt in the camp. And if there is sin in the camp, is it sin with me and Jonathan, or is it with the people of Israel? As you inquire of the Lord, we see in the text that Saul called for Urim and Thummim to help determine where the sin lies, which camp it was in. So if you're not familiar with Urim and Thummim, so it's a little unclear exactly what these were, but they seem to be some type of, like, of gems or stones that the priest would wear in his ephod, 
just kind of like an apron-like garment. In the Old Testament, when the people of God were seeking the Lord for some type of clarity, the priests would come and they cast the Urim and Thummim. And depending on how the lots would fall, the priests would then interpret what happened to help to understand God's will. So, so that's what they're doing in our text in verses 41 through 42. So there's Jonathan and Saul on one side, the rest of Israel on the other side. And they're, they're casting lots to help determine who is at fault. So for those who are familiar with the story of Achan in the book of Joshua, it's kind of similar to what's happening here. And as the priest about to cast the lots, I can just see Saul standing like pretty smug and pretty arrogant here. Like he's just kind of ready to further jump down the throats of Israel to once again tell them how bad they are and how great he is. Clearly at this scene, he doesn't even consider that perhaps his camp is the one that's in fault. From this text, as the scene unfolds, Saul's smug attitude quickly changes. His jaw hits the ground in complete utter shock as he sees that the lot falls on Jonathan. Jonathan was the one who was in fault. Verse 43. As Saul learned the issue was with his son, he turns to Saul or to Jonathan and passionately cries out to him, uh, to him, Jonathan, what have you done? Like he, he is shocked here. Only for Jonathan to respond back to Saul by telling him the truth, which by the way is kind of refreshing, especially in this text here. Like he's telling the truth. So unlike his dad, Jonathan didn't try to hide things, didn't try to blame shift. He didn't try to explain things away. He didn't try to cover things up. Rather, he's trying to trust in the Lord here. And he's honest. He's forthright. I mean, he doesn't even give up a legitimate excuse that he didn't even hear the command to, to fast. So in our text, he tells his dad, Dad, I tasted a little bit of honey with the tip of my staff. Like, he admit, admits to what happened. And not only does he admit to what happened, he even accepts the consequences of it. He accepts the consequences of his dad's foolish command, saying at the end of verse 30, 43, here I am. I will die. Now, this morning, the focus of the text is Saul and another warning that his life gives to us. Let's not miss this here in the character of Jonathan and the integrity that he has to keep his word, to be truthful. Like They say a lot here. Verse 44. Saul hears back from his son. He's now put at basically at crossroads. So either he goes against his own oath, admitting his fault that he made this oath uh, incorrectly in the first place, which would have spared Jonathan's life, or in a sense, Saul could like save his own faith, keep the oath out there, but then his son would have to die. Pathetically, what we see in the text, the father of the year Saul he once again chooses himself, even over the life of his very son. He's too prideful here to even stand up for his son at the risk that it might make him personally look bad. I mean, think about it. He would rather have his son die than to have his reputation tarnished. So in the text, Saul to Jonathan, God do so to me and more so. Yes, Jonathan, you shall surely die. He's like bringing a curse upon himself if he did not follow through on his foolish oath and kill his son. God do to me and more so if I do not kill you, Jonathan. So he says, I can just imagine the jaws of the people of Israel now falling to the ground. Like, did Saul just say what we think he said? 
12, verse 45, the text. As the people heard what Saul said, how willingly he was for his son to die. You see, the people of Israel, they're not having it. And even though they were scared of Saul at the beginning of the text, they had such love for Jonathan that those love pushed out fear. So they, they basically challenged Saul, saying to Saul, Saul, shall Jonathan, who just gave us this great salvation in the previous text, shall he now die because of your foolish oath? Saul, far from it. We do not accept this reality. As the Lord lives, not even a single hair will fall from his head today, for he is the one who had worked with God this day. In short, the people of Israel did what Saul would not do. They stepped in front. They put themselves at risk to save the life of Jonathan. Or as the ESV translation has it, they ransomed Jonathan so that he would not die. Forty-six. As this scene concludes, we that Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines all the way up to their own place. So this conflict ended, but we'll see in just a second. Conflict continued to mark the reign of Saul. But finally, our text this morning ends, closing off the scene, which started in chapter thirteen, with Saul's unlawful sacrifice. Where the author of First Samuel gives basically a short summary of Saul's reign. So starting in verse 47, we see that Saul's reign would be characterized by ongoing conflict, where he's always fighting enemies on every side. In the text would be Moab to the southeast, the Ammonites to the east, Edom to the south, Zoab to the north, always fighting against Saul. We also see in verse 47 that future conflict with the Philistines would indeed rise, to the point that in 52, that all the days of Saul would be hard fighting against the Philistines. And this continued ongoing conflict with the Philistines proved the words of Jonathan to be true in verse 30 of our text. Because of this foolish oath of Saul, they were not able to get a great, as great a defeat with the Philistines as they should have. So for years and years to come, this is a challenge that they had to endure. In our text, we also read the Saul fight against the Amalekites, who were like a nomadic tribe who tried to dwell in the land. Always fighting, always conflict. You know, for me, I can just imagine Saul every morning of his reign, like getting a report from the latest military conflict that was there. Where seemingly hardly a day in his reign would go by that there wasn't some report of some type of conflict. In the text, we do see that in all of his conflict, he did prove to be pretty successful. That wherever he turned, that he would rout the enemies and he would deliver Israel out of the hands of all who sought to plunder him. However, at the same time, he was never able to give his people any kind of peace. Like, they're always at war. Then after the summary statements of Saul's reign, we see in verses 49 through 51, a bit of summary of Saul's family lineage, which are names we're going to see a few, um, uh, again in the weeks to come. As mentioned, finally, in verse 52, throughout Saul's reign, there would be hard fighting against the Philistines. This foolish act in our text today, his foolish words would ripple for years to come. They keep saying it. If he just would have done the right thing, what Jonathan suggested, it would have saved his people from so much pain that perhaps maybe they would have lived quiet and peaceful lives. But that's not what happened. Saul was always at war. So the text ends by saying that wherever he found a strong man or a valiant man, Saul attached that man to himself. 
Now, as we come to the end of our time here, I want to circle back to a few things I've kind of said throughout this text and tease them out just a little bit. And these things will relate to our tongues, the words that come out of our mouth. Now, this morning, I don't have enough time to give a, a complete biblical theology concerning the tongue, simply because the Bible actually says a lot about our tongue, our words, how powerful our tongues are, how powerful the words we speak can be. And in these powerful tongues, in their powerful words, sometimes they can be used for good, but other times for bad. Sometimes they can be used for building up, but yeah, like we see in our text today, it can be used for destruction. So what can we learn from this tragic story of Saul, where his words just brought about so much destruction? So let me give you a few specific things from the text where I personally felt conviction this week. So first, words can be attempt to gain control. So much of the entire scene that we see in chapter 13, which is where we get to our point today in chapter 14, this is Saul having some real control issues. He's trying to control all things around him. Like he's feeling things slip away. Things are not going the way he wanted them to go. So throughout the scene, he's trying to get back control through his words. He wanted to control how the fight was going against the Philistines. Right, which he wanted for his own glory. So he spoke the words of the fast. He wanted control of having power over the people. So he gave them a sharp, hypocritical rebuke when he found out they were sinning. He wanted control of how the people thought about them and the strength of his faith. So he spoke words to build an altar, even though in truth that's the first time him actually doing so. He wanted control to prove to everyone that he was better than them which is why he spoke, uh, broke them into two camps. He wanted control to how people thought about him and the strength of his leadership, which is why he spoke the words that he would actually put his son to death. And throughout this passage, Saul is trying to control things with all the different things that he said. Let's be honest. We do the same thing. When we lie, when we over-exaggerate, when we speak one thing in one setting, but something very different in another setting, when we seek to tear others down, what do we want? We want control. All these words are attempts for us to control situations, control people, control how others are thinking about us. Second, words can have a real negative ripple effect. That is part of the story of this text. The hasty words spoken by Saul at the start of the text rippled all the way throughout the text and beyond. At the start of the text, in the oath, it had a negative effect on the hard-pressed army that rippled, causing them to be even more hard-pressed, even more discouraged. And then they rippled on from there so that God's people were not able to get the victory the way they should have. So for years to come, his words would continue to ripple, resulting in the Philistines being a thorn in their side for the entire reign of Saul. Saul's foolish, hasty, prideful words brought forth a ripple of pain and hurt for many, for years and years. Friends, this is why our words are so important. 
And this is why they are so powerful. When we speak words for the glory of God and the good of others, as we minister grace to hearers, and as we build them up, who knows the lasting impact of how God might ripple that for good. But on the other side, when our words are hastily spoken out of a heart of pride, when they bring destruction to our hearers, they have a way of rippling well beyond when the conversation ends. I've got to say it again in our text. There is years and years of a negative ripple effect came from the hasty, prideful words of Saul. Third, words can lead to more words. This one, I circle back to the snowball that I kind of briefly mentioned. The snowball that really started to build in chapter 13 that kept growing and growing and growing all through the life of Saul. Where he shows like no repentance, no sign of repentance. Rather, once his tongue got moving, it just continued to pick up more and more speed. Even though at different times like he was confronted by others, even though many times he confronted by his own folly, it just kept snowballing. He just couldn't keep his mouth from running. It just kept going over and over and over again. Back to the text. He started with a foolish oath that snowballed into him going on the attack of others, never acknowledging his own failures or how his own failures contributed to the failures of others. And that snowballed into a rash vow where he's like willing to see his son perish. This is also one of the many reasons why we need to be mindful of what we say. Because if we're not careful, just like Saul, our words can just get away from us and snowball. And it can snowball in such a way that we speak more and more and more words. And almost everything we say is becomes like tainted by foolishness or sinful pride. Where we might even get ourselves so twisted around by the foolish words that we say that we don't even see how far we've gotten. Right? The story of Saul saying one foolish thing to cover up for another foolish thing, to cover up for yet another foolish thing that was said. My friends, in the weeks to come, we're going to keep seeing this, the demise, the fall of Saul. Let's take note here. One of the real reasons why things ended so badly for him, he just never figured out how to control his tongue which is a little ironic when you think about it. For someone who seemed to have like a real control issue, he's kind of a control freak here, this little member of his body was something he never got mastery over. So it became like a rudder on a ship that led him and so many others around him just to disaster. If we go back to the start of the sermon, today's text is one of the many texts in 1 Samuel where I felt such conviction. Now, if you're like me, feeling some conviction here, as I close, let me, let me just tell us what we need to do with this conviction. So we can't just sit on it. It's not enough just to feel bad about the words that we say. We actually need to do something. We need to repent. We need to turn from it. We need to stop sinning. No more excuses. No more justifying or explaining away our actions. We need to be humble. We need to admit where we have sinned. And we need to 
repent in such a way that we want to stop sinning, stop falling back in the same old, same old. Like we have to turn from these sinful actions. And as we do that, not only do we turn from our sinful actions, we turn to someone. Namely, we are to turn to Jesus Christ, Amen. who in the end is the only one who can truly redeem us from our sins. Amen. In the end, Jesus is the only one who could truly redeem us because he is the one who stepped in front of the justice of God on our behalf. We're in the justice of God. God has rightly and fairly judged us all guilty for breaking his good commands found in his good and perfect word. And friends, let me tell you, in the judgment of God, Scripture even plainly tells us that even liars will be thrown into the lake of fire. But to say it again, the good news is Jesus steps in front of his sinful people, which he did by willingly laying down his life for us, even though himself was sinless. And Jesus laid down his life by being lifted up on a cross where he spilled his blood to be the one true sacrifice of sin. Where in our place, he took on the justice of God. We're in accordance with God's good word. Jesus died, according to the scriptures, only for him to rise again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And friends, through his word, Jesus promised that he will forgive all, all who by faith turn from sin and turn to him. And as he forgives us, he casts our sin as far as the east is from the west. And not only does he give a promise of forgiveness, but his word also tells us that one day he will return for us. And when he returns to us, he's going to bring us into a kingdom, a kingdom that will not have conflict on every side. Rather, the kingdom that Jesus is bringing in is a kingdom that will always and forever be a kingdom of peace. So friends, if you feel conviction today, do the only thing that you and I should do with that conviction. Let that conviction drive you to fall at the feet of Jesus Christ. But we ultimately see that's how faithful God is to his people. That he has faithfully sent us, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful that your words are not like our words. Our words are often tainted by sin and foolishness and pride. But your words are perfect and they're true and they're eternal and they're good. And Lord, your good word tells us that if we come to Jesus that we would find forgiveness So, Lord, this morning, I do pray you'd help us to come to Jesus for forgiveness. Lord, help us to repent where we need to repent. Lord, as we repent, help us to believe and trust that your word is true, that you are just to forgive us of all of our sins. So, God, I do pray you do a great work in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.